The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going through the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and God actually providentially and logically had Revelation put at the end of our Bible, of our 66 books, because Revelation is the answer and the culmination to everything that God's been doing through history and what he began to tell us in the book of Genesis. So it's only fitting that Revelation goes at the end because it tells us what happens at the end and even into eternity. It tells us who wins. Jesus wins. Yippee! Um, so that's exciting. And so we're going through Revelation, most of it about the future yet to come. It's prophetic literature, as it says in chapter 1, verse 3, and also in chapter 22. Uh, before I get to Revelation chapter 16, I want to read, like I've been doing, reading some key Old Testament passages that really lay the foundation for the particular chapter we're in. And there are too many Old Testament passages that relate to the theme of Revelation 16 today, but I'll just pick a few that are relevant. Um, so follow along with me. And we'll start in Exodus. We'll go to Exodus, Psalm 2, Haggai. Haggai, we haven't done that one yet. So uh, it's kind of neat. Most of the, just about every one of the prophets had something to say about the end of the age that's fulfilled in Revelation. But we're going to start in Exodus Chapter 8, uh, the story, beginning of Exodus, is where God raises up Moses to to lead the Israelites who are in bondage and slavery down in Egypt to lead them uh, out of Egypt, across the Red Sea to the Promised Land. And Pharaoh was in charge at the time, and Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go. He had a very hardened heart, and so God had to contend with Pharaoh, and he did that through what are called plagues, the ten plagues of Egypt that God rain down on Pharaoh to really bring Pharaoh to his knees, to get uh, Pharaoh like kind of in a an arm lock till he cried uncle from God himself until after the 10th plague, finally Pharaoh said, okay, Moses, you can let, I'll let your people go. Uh, and so God did these 10 plagues uh, through Moses. And you may remember the 10 plagues, uh, but I want to direct your attention to Exodus chapter 8, starting at verse 20 through 23, just an excerpt of one of the ten plagues. And there's one sentence or phrase I want to highlight in this one. So starting at Exodus chapter 8, as Moses is interacting with Pharaoh and Moses is giving the very word of God to Pharaoh. Uh, verse 19 says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So God's going to talk to Pharaoh through Moses. Verse 20, Now the Lord said to Moses, so God's speaking through Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you will not let my people go, Pharaoh, behold, that's a warning. I, God, Yahweh, will send swarms of insects. That's a plague from God. And notice who God is going to send the plague on. God makes a distinction. God makes is discriminating here. That's the point I want to make because we're going to see some discrimination of God's wrath in Revelation 16. God makes a distinction between His people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians with this plague. That is amazing to think about it because the plague is insects. How can you discriminate with a bunch of insects or flies or gnats? Only God could do that. Go this way. You go this way. So here's the discrimination that God makes. Um, I'm going to send swarms of insects on you and on your servants and on your people, that's the Egyptians, and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of insects and also on the ground on which they dwell. 
But, contrast on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, a small area in Egypt where my people, the Israelites, are living so that no swarms of insects will be there. Isn't that amazing? Why? In order that you may know, Pharaoh, that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land and I am the God of the Israelites. He's making a distinction. Uh, we're going to see God make another distinction in Revelation 16. We saw this early on in Revelation 3.10 when God told the church at Philadelphia, because of your faithfulness, I will, as a promise, and it wasn't just a promise to the church of Philadelphia 2,000 years ago, it was a promise to all believers in the church age. We know that at the end of the passage to the, the uh, believers in Philadelphia, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches, it's a universal promise, and the promise to the faithful Christians at the church of Philadelphia was I will keep you from the hour of trial. From the entire time period. You won't even be there. The seven year tribulation that is yet future. I will keep you from the hour of trial which is about to come upon the whole world. It is universal. It hasn't happened yet. It is unprecedented. You won't even be around on earth when the tribulation happens. I will keep you from the hour of trial which is about to come upon the whole world for the purpose of testing or literally trying and punishing earth dwellers. And earth dwellers is a technical term used 13 times in Revelation, always referring to unbelievers. So one of the main points of the tribulation when God pours out his wrath is to punish those who have a hardened, unbelieving heart. So God makes a distinction. And he did that in Exodus with the plagues. He does that in the future in Revelation 16 with the plagues we're going to see. Let's go to Psalm 2. We People like to read the Psalms, meditate on the Psalms, be blessed and encouraged by the Psalms. They're very uplifting many times. You can identify with the Psalms because many times the psalmist is very frail and weak as we are in crying out to God and asking for help and mercy. The unique thing about Psalm chapter 2 is Psalm chapter 2 actually is prophetic and eschatological. It refers in terms of its fulfillment, to the end of the age. So most of Psalm 2 has not happened yet. It is yet future. It's talking about World War IV or World War V that's going to happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation. That is exactly what it's talking about. And it's called Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon, that's going to happen in Israel. And it's going to be Jesus versus His enemies who are alive at that time at the end of the seven-year tribulation, just before the millennium. That is what Psalm 2 is referring to. It is prophetic. And this is referred to, actually, throughout Revelation. And it is referred to specifically in Revelation 16. And God says in Psalm 2 about this future battle between the Messiah and the kings of the earth led by Antichrist. Why are the nations, that's the unbelieving Gentile pagan nations around the world who are led by ten kings, we know from Daniel and Revelation. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing, a futile thing against God? They hate God, the creator of the universe. The kings of the earth, they take their stand. They're getting ready for war. And the rulers take counsel together against who? Against Yahweh and against His Messiah. Wow. Well, God looks down from heaven in verse 4 and laughs at their futile plans. The Lord scoffs or mocks them. And God will speak to them in His anger at that time and terrify them in His fury. And that fury that is terrifying, we see fulfilled in Revelation 16 today, which is referring to the end of the seven-year tribulation. Fury. Verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king. This is God talking. God the Father. But as for me, I have installed my king. That is Jesus, the supernatural, resurrected, glorified, majestic Messiah. And that will happen at the second coming when He lands in Jerusalem and God the Father ordains Him as the reigning, rightful king of all of earth. 
the anointed one, headquartered in Zion, in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. So this is specifically referred to in Revelation 16 today. And then one more in the Old Testament. Let's go to Haggai, which is at the end of your Old Testament, just before Matthew in the New Testament, uh, just before Malachi and Zechariah. Haggai, uh, a highly neglected book, a short book. Uh, but chapter 2 has some... It talks about stuff going on in the days of Zerubbabel and Haggai, but it also, as many times, prophetic literature also skips into the future, the end of the age, and that's what's going on here, the context of this verse. Verses 6 and 7 in Haggai chapter 2. This is what God says about the end of the age. For thus says the Lord, or Yahweh, God's personal name, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. God's going to create an earthquake. He is the weatherman. Earthquakes don't happen by chance. They happen within God's plan. He is the creator. He made everything. He made the mountains. He made the earth. He controls it. Once more, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. How This is going to be an earthquake. It's going to be universal in extent because verse 7 says, and I, that's God, will shake all the nations. This is a an earthquake unprecedented and so devastating that every quarter of the ends of the earth feels the impact of it. On the Richter scale, I think it's a 15.7, which is not even humanly possible. That's how massive this earthquake is going to be. This earthquake is mentioned in Revelation 16 today as we look at it. Huge. I think earthquakes are scary. I never experienced one until I came to California when I was 19. Then I experienced my first earthquake in college, in class, 7.30 in the morning, and all the students ran out of the building into the street crying and in a panic and, whoa, I'd never experienced anything like that. Just give me the tornadoes of Colorado. I can't handle this earthquake stuff. At least I know a, earth, a tornado's coming. Uh, so God's going to shake the earth. I will shake the, all the nations. They will come with the wealth of all the nations. I will fill uh, this house with glory, says Lord of hosts. And what really is going to create that earthquake is when Jesus lands uh, in Jerusalem. That's one of the things that's going to create that massive earthquake that re- literally changes the topography of planet Earth and Jerusalem and Israel as we know it. Because when God lands on earth, he smashes things and things kind of dent. And that's what's going to happen. Uh, one more. Now we'll go to the New Testament. One verse I want to read. And it's a parallel to what Scott read this morning in Hebrews. Great verse and totally related to the context of Revelation 16. And actually a big chunk of Revelation 16. But in Romans chapter 12, uh, this is Paul talking to Christians during the church age. The age of grace, really, the age of the gospel. The time period in history where God is being very patient with sinners and calling them and wooing to them to himself with the gospel and with Christians who go out with the gospel. And this is a good, healthy reminder for the attitude of Christians towards sinful people in the world. Now is not the time for uh, retribution and recompense and retaliation on our part. That is not our job in this lifetime during the church age. This is a time of being a faithful steward of the glorious gospel of grace and getting it out, being seed planters to the unbelieving world and being a light in terms of our testimony to them, suffering if necessary, and praying for the salvation of the lost. We leave judgment in the hands of God. And that's what Paul reminds us. So look at Romans twelve seventeen. Never pay back evil for evil. Never, uh, evil for evil to anyone. Do not retaliate. That's not the Christian way. That's not biblical. Never. Well, they did this. Never. Respect 
what is right in sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Sometimes that is not possible. And you might have to just remove yourself or extricate yourself and remove. And that's how you get peace. Remove the foolish man. Remove the scoffer. Sometimes that's what you got to do, just separation. But insofar it depends upon you, you can't be the troublemaker. 19. Uh, never, 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 never take your own revenge, beloved Christian. But here it is. But leave room for the wrath of God. If you take your own revenge, then you just usurped what God may have been willing to do in the future, either in this lifetime or the life to come. Don't take it into your own hands. Don't do what Judge Wapner said. Take it into your own hands. Take them to court. That's a horrible statement for a Christian. Take it into your own hands. No, leave it in God's hands. Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Wow. Verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, well, what if my enemy is mean? What if I have an enemy and he's mean? Well, then feed him. Really? And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Keep that in mind as we read Revelation 16. And maybe you get a little excited as a Christian because of your righteous indignation and you're thinking, oh, finally the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the unbelieving world. Well, you've got to remember, this is in the future during the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation. And you aren't there. You're in heaven, maybe rejoicing or celebrating or watching. But it doesn't happen in this life. Leave room for the wrath of God. And because we, we live in a corrupt world, a cursed world, a sinful, wicked, evil world. And many times we want justice, don't we? We want it immediately. Well, we gotta wait. We gotta be patient. Leave room for the wrath of God. Okay, let's go ahead and look at the, uh, sermon of the day, which I call the seven bowl judgments. Uh, not such a profound title. I just looked in the chapter and counted, hey, there's seven bowls. Seven bowl judgments. Simple enough, very straightforward. This chapter is very straightforward. Uh, where we are in the book of Revelation is it's all about the future for the most part from chapter 4 to chapter 22. It hasn't happened yet, just so you know. So it's prophetic. This is going to happen in the future. Most of the content in the book of Revelation happens during a seven-year period. We know it's a seven-year period because Daniel told us it lasts seven years. We know it's at the end of the age because Daniel told us it's at the end of the age. We know that most of this judgment that's happening, these horrible things that are happening, are at the second part of the seven years of the seven-year tribulation because John tells us three different times in three different ways that it's three and a half years. He says three and a half years, 42 months, 1,200 days. That all equals three and a half years. So we know that most of this bad stuff is the last part of that seven-year period, the three-and-a-half-year period. That's where these bold judgments happen. They happen at the end of the seven-year period where uh, the worst kind of and final issuing of God's wrath is poured out. We know that this last three and a half years of the tribulation is called the Great Tribulation because that's what Jesus called it in Matthew 24. He came up and coined that phrase, the Great Tribulation. And then John even picks up on that and he uses that term in Revelation 7, calling it, in the words of Jesus, the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years. Uh, we saw the seal judgments at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. Already earlier in the book, chapter 6. And then we saw the trumpet judgments that flow out of the seal judgments. And that's kind of at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. And now we are launched in the future, the culmination, the final end, how it all is consummated in God's plan through the seven bowl judgments, which flow out of the seven trumpet judgments, which flowed out of the seventh seal judgment. 
It's like telescopic in terms of God pouring out his judgment. So these are the seven bold judgments in chapter 16. We are now at the end of the seven-year tribulation. We are on the brink of the Lord Jesus Christ returning in glory to begin a thousand-year reign on the earth as King Jesus with all of us who believe as his vice-regents ruling on his behalf. Very exciting for the Christian. But this needs to happen first before this utopia, which is a real utopia. A lot of people today have ideas of utopia that aren't realistic. Utopias now, before all of this, apart from God. No, there isn't going to be a utopia now on the earth apart from God and Christ's plan. There will be a utopia in the future according to God's plan in the millennium for 1,000 years and even beyond. So let's go ahead and look at the seven bold judgments. Uh, and we'll just take them one at a time. They're very straightforward, self-explanatory. But when I think about the seven bold judgments in Revelation 16, as I was studying this week, there are two things that uh, came to my mind that have been indelibly etched in my mind regarding Revelation 16. I've taught on Revelation several times over the years, but two times that I preached through it, actually one in particular uh, brings a memory, but before that, I remember before this church plant started, and it was a week before the church plant, so our family needed a place to go to church. So we just decided, so for like two weeks, we just visited local church. And then, so one Sunday, the week before the church plants, August 2006, uh, I took the family, we just walked to a local church where we live, Cupertino. And it just so happens that day, the preacher was preaching on Revelation 16. And so we were way in the back and back row and stuffed and all kinds of people. Revelation 16, I got my kids and my wife Debbie's with me. And so we listened to the preacher. Actually, it wasn't a preacher. It was actually an academic lecture that was given. A very erudite academic lecture that went on for about 59 minutes. And I was thinking, man, I'm having a hard time understanding what this guy's talking about. I can only imagine what the rest of my family thinks. So we talked about it afterwards. And they all said, uh, we don't know what that guy was talking about. I said, oh, good. I feel better now. I don't feel so stupid. Um, but I was really troubled by the interpretation the guy came up with. So I, I went, I've never been to that church before, and I went up, tried to be kind, polite, introduced myself, friendly. I'm a visitor, about to start a church plant, pastor so-and-so. Know some people at this church, glad to be here today. Hey, i got a question about uh, your view of Revelation 16. And bottom line is, he gave an allegorical interpretation, and he didn't think it was yet future, and actually all this stuff was happening right now and has been happening for 2,000 years in church history. And nothing was literal. It was all spiritual, metaphorical, allegorical. So if it says that the sea turned into blood, he had a spiritual interpretation and the sea did not turn into blood. And it's not yet future, a specific event. It's been going on. The sea's been turning into blood for 2,000 years. You just didn't know it. I was like, huh? Um, so it was totally allegorized and totally confusing. And if you didn't hear his explanation, you never would have been able to interpret it because he's the only one that had the keys to unlock the interpretation. And that's one of the problems of allegorical interpretation because you've got this elitist perspective. You need this insider's knowledge. You can't just read it and take it at face value. But God intended his people to understand his word clearly. So I'll never forget that. And uh, I just thought, wow, that's pretty sad. I mean, the Battle of Armageddon that's mentioned here has already happened. He, as a matter of fact, he told, I said, so you're telling me the Battle of Armageddon's already happened? Oh, every time there's a war, that's the Battle of Armageddon. Wow. So there's really no specific event this is referring to. Uh, I just thought it was sad. Uh, the second example that I remember on Revelation 16 isn't so sad. Uh, it was in February 2002, and I was going through the book of Revelation to a, an adult Sunday school class with about 60, 70 people in it. A chapter at a time, one uh, chapter per week. And it was Super Bowl Sunday, and I had Revelation 16 
on the bowl, the super bowls of God's wrath. Dude, I thought that that was awesome. Super Bowl Sunday, man. This is super. This is God's Super Bowl. And you don't want to attend this Super Bowl. And so I, for the last four months, I've been figuring out, OK, how can I get Revelation 16 on the first week of February? I couldn't work it out. I, I couldn't manipulate it. I'm three weeks short. But anyway, at least it's playoff season. I think it's the Packers against the Patriots in the Super Bowl. That's close enough. Well, anyway, with that said, let's go. Uh, and let's look at the bowl judgments that God pours out at the end of the tribulation. By the way, from reminder from last week, Revelation 15 verse 1 said that these bowls we're about to see of God's wrath are called the seven plagues, and they are the last ones. There is chronological order. There is sequence and continuity. So that's why uh, I believe that Revelation clearly is a chronological, sequential, progressive book. And the allegorical interpreters will deny that. But these bowls are the last plagues, meaning that you saw the trumpet judgments. Those weren't the last ones. Those were in the middle. And you saw the seal judgments. Those weren't in the middle. Those were at the beginning. These are the last judgments. There is chronology here. So this is it. It's going to be done after this. It is over. It is concluded. And God's actually going to say that in this chapter. With these, it is done. So let's go ahead and look at these seven bowl judgments. We're going to move fast. It's going to be rapid fire because that's how these bowls are being poured out. Because when the English translation says, and the second one poured out his bowl, third one, it's not really pouring because the word for bowl is very specific. It's a very shallow basin. And the verb being used and the tense of the verb is it's like they are splashed or splattered down to the earth one after the other. In rapid succession, that is, and, the, and even the tense of the aorist tense being used uh, gives us a sense of urgency and immediacy, one after the other. And so it's like this machine gun-like unloading of God's wrath. There aren't these five and a half year, five month periods where uh, a judgment is happening, like we saw in one of the trumpet judgments. This is just boom, boom, boom. Now they all start, I think, at different times, right after the other, but they all probably conclude at the same time, and that's at the end of the tribulation. So they start at different times, one after the other, but all conclude at the very end. So let's go ahead and look at these uh, seven bowl judgments from God. And I'm just going to take them one at a time. And the first one is verses one to two. And that is bowl one. And this judgment happens on the earth. And what happens? Soars on unbelievers. Verse one and two. And John says, and I heard a, a, a loud voice. That's actually the voice of God. Revelation 15:8, Isaiah 66, 6 refers to this event with the voice of God at this time. Historically, we know from the Old Testament, this is God's voice. He's issuing the command. I heard a loud voice, a loud voice. By the way, the NASB says loud voice. The literal word is mega, which is great. I heard a great voice. And the word great mega is used 11 times in this chapter, like no other chapter in the Bible. These are great historical, unprecedented yet future events. The King James translates mega as great every single time in this chapter. The NASB translates the word mega five different ways. Loud, great, fierce, and a couple of other words. I don't know why they did that. I should have just kept it with what the King James did. Great. So I heard a great voice, which was loud, from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out or splash the seven bowls or the basins of the wrath of God onto the earth. And the first angel, he obeyed God. He went and he poured out his bowl into the earth, literally on planet earth. The entire 
surface of planet Earth. So it's gonna, it's universal. It affects everybody who is on Earth in terms of the intended audience. And what happened when he poured out his judgment? It became, here was the judgment. It became a loathsome and malignant sore. Literally an ulcer. God poured out ulcers on certain people on planet Earth. That's the Greek word. It's an ulcer. It is, it is open. It is a wound that won't heal. It is bleeding. It is running. It is issuing. Cannot be healed. That's what was inflicted. And by the way, the words used there, loathsome and malignant, meaning it was heinous, heinous to even look at, like Job had on his body. And malignant, meaning it was painful. Wow. Became a loathsome and malignant sore. Well, upon who? Everybody? Because there are believers during this time in the tribulation living in earth. We know there's 144,000 believing Jewish men. They are on earth. There are others who are believers. We know from Revelation 12 at the end who heard the gospel and believed and repented, wouldn't take the mark. So is God pouring this judgment upon believers as well? No, he's discriminating like he did in Exodus. He is discriminating between his people and unbelievers. And that's why at the end of verse 2 it says this, this, these sores, these ulcers were poured out upon the men or people who had the mark of the beast. They willingly, knowingly committed themselves to bow the knee in their allegiance and even worship to the Antichrist, to the devil and his false prophet. And reject, and these were Christ haters and God rejecters. And that's who God was punishing. These are earth dwellers of Revelation 3.10. That's who God is pouring this judgment upon. Uh, the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Wow. Think about this universal cataclysmic event and the excruciating pain that happens for who knows how long. You would think... That And by the way, we're going to see from the context that, that people know God is the one doing this. They've known all along in Revelation, this is God. So you would think you, you get to that point of excruciating pain like never experienced before that you would relent and say, okay, God, I give. I, I repent. I free. That's not going to happen. That's the hardness of sin. They love their sin more than they love forgiveness and God's grace. It's pretty sad. That's how dark and deceptive and satanic sin can be. Sad. So that's bowl one. God pours judgment down upon the entire surface of planet Earth. And he goes on. So let's look at bowl number two. Bowl number two where this bowl is poured out on the sea, on the sea, and the sea becomes blood. That's verse three. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood. Well, is this just the Mediterranean Sea? Is this just kind of a local lake like some commentators want to believe? No. This is the seas of planet Earth. This is universal. This, this covers the entire earth. How do you know that? Well, the text says so. Second, he poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man. And well, how do you know it's universal? The end of verse three says every living thing in the sea, literally every living soul, fish, it doesn't matter what it was, humans that are in the sea at the time, everything died. Every living thing in the sea. We're going to see as we go through these seven plagues or bowl judgments, there are parallels and similarities to the ten plagues of Egypt, but the big difference is that these judgments, they are universal. The ones in uh, Egypt were localized to the area of Egypt. These are universal, covering the entire earth. God is making a statement. He's making a statement to the entire earth of rebels who have actually been killing his believers during the tribulation. And now he's, God is actually answering the prayer of the saints in Revelation 6 when the souls under the altar were crying out at mid-tribulation saying, God, avenge our blood. We've been murdered because we believe in Jesus. And God said, hold on, wait a little longer. Well, now's the answer. 
The little longer is at the end of the seven-year tribulation. God is answering that prayer. He's pouring out his wrath with judgment on those who deserve it. Those who deserve it? Yeah, they do. They deserve it because the end of verse 6 says they deserve it. It's exactly what it says. God is the creator. He is the judge. He made every person. He knows every person's thoughts, every action they do. He knows their heart. He is the judge and the creator. They deserve it. What he does is right. He always does the right thing. This is his not just his judgment, his holy judgment, which is his perfect judgment. They deserve it. Verse. Uh, let's go on to bowl number three. Uh, bowl number three is on the rivers. Pretty much everything in creation is going to be judged by God. The earth itself, the sea, the rivers, the sun. Uh, and also that's a judgment on the history of humanity, which through its false religion, every single one of these things has been worshipped by humanity at one time or another because humanity in its sin is prone to worship the creation rather than the creator. So that's one of the things that God is doing. Okay, you want to worship the sea and how powerful it is? Okay, well, I'm going to make the sea your enemy. So bold judgment number three is on the rivers and it also turns to blood. By the way, was this real blood? Absolutely real blood because in verse three, uh, it says the sea turned to blood. It It doesn't say it became like blood. It became blood. And Haima, the word uh, for blood is used. And just as the Nile turned to blood historically, so also supernaturally, the sea is going to turn into blood. And here, the third bowl, the rivers. Every river on planet Earth is also going to turn into blood. Universally, that is the judgment. The sound uh, and the uh, and the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of the waters, and they became blood. And this is all over planet Earth. Uh, one different thing that God is doing here is He's keeping uh, people from doing what they did during the time when God turned the Nile into blood, because it says that God turned the Nile River into blood. So the Egyptians they couldn't get water out of the Nile. So it says they dug up water by the Nile to get water. When God in little uh, rivers and God said, hey, it ain't going to happen. The, even the springs and rivers of all of planet Earth are going to be turned to blood instantaneously as well. You won't be able to find fresh drinking water anywhere on Earth. This is absolutely devastating. Three-fourths of planet Earth is covered with water. Now it's all turned to blood. Coagulated, real, putrefying, disgusting blood. What an image. Third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers, springs of waters, and they became blood. Don't let... People confuse you and say, well, it's like blood or it wasn't really blood or it's just figurative. And it's not because there are scholars and there are good scholars. F.F. F. Bruce, for example, great scholar. And he says these, this isn't real. And even the Nile River didn't turn to blood. It just looked like it. In Palestine at 5.20 p.m. from the sun's reflection, it kind of looks like blood, but it's not really blood. No, it's blood. The Bible says it is. Well, how is that possible? Because God does miracles. That's why. What is so hard to believe about that? I believe Jesus rose from the dead after three days, but I can't believe that God can turn the Nile into blood or the sea into blood. I believe that God created the world out of nothing, but He can't turn the sea into blood. No, God's a God of miracles. What He says goes. Verse 5, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous art thou, God, who art and who was, O Holy One, or literally, O Sacred One, the One who is uh, transcendent and apart from all of humanity, the ineffable One, God, you're, you're apart from creation. You are the judge of the creator. That's what that means. O sacred, holy one, because thou, God, didst judge these things, for they poured out the blood of saints. And God, why are you turning everything into blood? Well, what's been going on for up to seven years is the Antichrist, the false prophet, unbelievers driven by Satan are killing believers during the tribulation. And literally, blood of the saints is flowing all over earth. So it's like God is saying, oh, you want blood to flow? I'll give you some blood to flow. And that's what he did. 
And that's why it says it is deserved, uh, because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. That's referring to people who get murdered in the tribulation for believing in Christ. And thou hast given them blood to drink. Wow, they deserve it. That's probably one of the most startling statements in the entire Bible. They deserve it. And it also challenges the human mind in the way we think. You can't understand that and believe it without a supernatural illumination from God's Spirit. That kind of wrath, that kind of justice, that goes against the grain of human nature as we are. Because we don't understand God's pure, holy wrath apart from Him helping us to understand. I only believe in the holy wrath of God and His retribution because it's taught in the Bible. I would not have come up on that on my own. If I was an unbeliever and I was going to make up my own religion, my own God, I'd say, God is loving. No, He's love, love, love. All you need is love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like the Beatles. No, this is God's holy wrath that is deserved. It's going to happen. It's yet future. Verse 7, And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord. You know who these are? These are the saints under the altar in Revelation 6 who have been praying for three and a half years for vindication, for justice, for God's wrath, because they were murdered. Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. God is a just judge. He gives to every person what they deserve. Every one of us actually deserves the wrath of God. Every one of us, for whatever sin, deserves death. And we deserve to be punished with death and hell. Isn't that kind of scary? That's bad news. The good news is somebody already got murdered, slaughtered, killed in your place to pay the penalty that you deserve from God. And that's when God the Father poured out all of His wrath on Jesus Christ on the cross as your substitute, so that if you believe in Jesus as your substitute, the wrath of God, which you deserve, is not going to be poured out on you. Only God's grace. Isn't that amazing? That is the good news of Christianity. That is the gospel. Okay, let's go on to bowl number four, which I I believe takes us to halftime of the Super Bowl. Uh, Bowl four, poured out on the sun, scorching heat, verses eight and nine. And the fourth angel splashed out his bowl, Upon the sun, notice all of creation is, and all of the most important, pertinent, powerful elements of creation are what are directly being affected. The sun. I mean, what's more important and powerful and determinative of life on earth than the sun? Between water and the sun. And the air we breathe. Well, God's going to judge every single one of those. All throughout history, people have been worshiping the sun. Even today in the Silicon Valley, with all technological advances, did you know that there are people who still worship the sun? They do. Carl Sagan, one of the smartest people in the history of the world, he worshipped the sun. He thought it was a living entity. Amazing. And God's going to judge it. It's not a living entity. It is something that God created for a specific purpose, and humans have distorted and perverted that purpose. As a result, it is judged. And the fourth angel poured out or splashed out his bowl upon the sun, and the sun was given was given by God. God is in charge. God is doing this. It was given... The sun was given uh, to scorch men with fire. Verse 9, And the men were scorched with fierce heat, or great heat, mega heat. Wow. So this is unprecedented. This is supernatural. I don't know what the temperature is that God's going to crank it up to, but He's going to crank it up so that every unbelieving person on planet Earth at that time who has the mark of the beast is going to be scorched with fire from the sun. Excruciating and painful. Wow. Wow. And you would think that if this, they've got ulcers already that are bleeding all over the place. They've got all their water supply has been affected. You'd think they'd relent, repent, cry out to God the Creator and worship Him for who He is, but that isn't what happens. Middle of verse, here's their response in the middle of verse 9. 
because of getting scorched with fire from God, they blasphemed the name of God. They cursed God. How dare you, the Creator, do this to me? Whoa. Three times it says they blasphemed God. Verse 9, verse 11. And uh, we'll see it a little later in one of the other bold judgments. They blasphemed the name of God who, who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give God glory as the Creator. Wow. That takes us to bowl number five. This bowl is poured out on the beast. That it would be the Antichrist. And physical pain results. I think it's just intensified physical pain that's already happening. They've got pain from being burned with fire. They've got pain from their bloody ulcers. And God just cranks it up a little bit more. And He does it in total darkness. So that's bowl number five. The fifth angel poured out or splashed out his bowl upon the throne of the beast. That's uh, the headquarters of the beast, which is probably somewhere in Babylon, which is somewhere over by Iraq today. Babylon means Babylon in the Bible, historically and geographically. This is a real place. This doesn't refer to Rome and the Roman Catholic Church. This means Babylon. The real place, Babylon. That's where the Antichrist is going to rule, in the Middle East, the hotbed of the Middle East. That's where he rules and reigns supreme over planet Earth and his henchmen. God's going to judge the sole ruling authority figure on planet Earth of that day who's been wreaking havoc for three and a half years against God's people. By the way, energized, empowered, and led by Satan himself. Satanic ability this Antichrist is going to have. Supernatural, satanic ability. God's going to put a halt to it because God pours out judgment upon the throne of the beast and his kingdom, the kingdom of the Antichrist. The kingdom, by the way, he has a universal reign of planet Earth at that time, like never before, putting Hitler to shame and others who have ruled throughout the past. His kingdom instantly became darkened. So this is the judgment. God pours out his wrath on the, the Antichrist and his entire kingdom be, lights out, a blackout over planet Earth, not just with electricity, but the sun itself. The sun is still going to be scorching with heat and somehow all people are going to not be able to see anything. Everybody's going to be in total Total blackness and darkness, just like the plague uh, against the Egyptians. This is going to make life very difficult. You don't have any water. You can't get around. How do you find your food? How do you find relief anywhere from your burning heat and the sores and your bloody altars as you're running around in the dark and you can't see a thing? Meanwhile, all of God's people are being preserved from every one of these judgments that's happening that are alive at that time. Whoa. Became dark and, and get this. Here's their response. Not repentance. It says they nod, they nod in perfect tense. They kept on gnawing. Literally, they kept on chewing their tongues. What imagery? Because of the pain. They kept on gnawing. That was their only response that they could muster to try to deal and cope with this pain. Verse 11, they blasphemed God. They didn't repent. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Again, the darkness of unforgiven sin. The, heart, the human heart, there's nothing like it in terms of hardness and rebellion apart from the energizing, regenerating work of Jesus Christ on a human heart. Takes us to bowl number six. And the sixth angel splashed out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, on the Euphrates River. Here we just referred to Babylon. That's in Iraq. Well, where's Euphrates? Down by Iraq. Is that the same? Is this... And then all kinds of commentators, well, this isn't literally the Euphrates River as we know it. This is uh, metaphorical and allegorical for something. And no, it's not. This is the Euphrates River. The Euphrates, that word is used dozens and dozens, 70 plus times in the Old Testament. Guess what? Every single time Euphrates River means Euphrates River. And coincidentally, it's located in Babylon. Wow! 
And Genesis chapter 2 is the first time it mentions the Euphrates River. Literally, here's the last time the Euphrates River is mentioned in the Bible. This is literally the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River extends almost 2,000 miles. It is huge. It is massive. It is historical. It survived 6,000 years of world history. And it exists in the future. God has it there strategically. Right now He has it there protecting the, the people of Israel and their land to whatever degree it can be protected. But here the judgment is uh, the angel pours out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates. This is over in Babylon in the Middle East. By the way, everybody in the Middle East hates the Jews in Israel even today. Twenty-seven nations immediately surrounding Israel hate the Jews. They despise them. And this is going to culminate at the end of the tribulation. God pours His wrath out on the Euphrates River, or the, the bowl, and what happened? Its water was dried up, just as God dried up the Red Sea instantaneously. That Talk about a miracle. God does miracles. How could God dry up the Euphrates River just instantaneously? Because God is supernatural, He is infinite, He's all-powerful, and God does miracles, and that's the God I believe. Why, why would I want to believe in a God who can't do that kind of a miracle? What hope is there for resurrection and the forgiveness of sin? This is the creator of the universe. He can do what he wants. He dries up the Euphrates River. He's doing it for a specific purpose in the future. And its water was dried up in order that for the purpose of that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east, from the Orient, from the east of the Euphrates River. All these in the Middle East over by Babylon who hate Israel. And God is preparing a path for them to enter in and crash in on Israel, on Jerusalem, for World War V to try to wipe out and destroy all of the Jews and all the people who profess Christ in the future. God is the one orchestrating this. He is in charge and in control. And what's going to happen in the future, and this is the Battle of Armageddon, that's what it's called, the end of the age. So God is going to drive the Euphrates River. Millions, hundreds of thousands, and maybe even millions of people who hate the Jews are going to come through that path past the Euphrates River where it's dried up, enter into the land and surround Palestine and Jerusalem and try to wipe out any Jew and any person that believes in Jesus Christ. And then that's when the war begins and almost is instantaneously over because that's when Jesus comes. It's not a bird, it's not a plane. No, it is Jesus on a white horse, lands in Jerusalem, boom! And there's the battle of Armageddon. It's a wipeout. It is a slaughter. So that's what's going on here. And this is described in Revelation 19, by the way. This battle. Uh, verse 13, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan. And out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist. And out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's the one that gives the power to the Antichrist. Three unclean spirits like frogs, like unclean, slimy, disgusting, plague-riddled frogs. This is the unholy trinity. It is demonic, it is satanic, and these are the ones who are actually empowering the evil deeds that are happening on planet Earth from a behind-the-scenes perspective. God is also going to judge them in this. Verse 14, for they are the spirits of demons. It is demonic. The Antichrist is empowered by Satan and demons, performing signs. The word there for sign in verse 14 is John's word for miracle. He uses it for miracle in the Gospel of John, and he refers, he uses it for miracles in the book of Revelation. The Antichrist somehow is going to have the ability to do supernatural, real, bona fide miracles. Not just tricks, but real miracles. How's that possible? Because he's going to be energized by Satan. Well, how's that possible? Because God's going to allow Satan to energize the Antichrist to do supernatural miracles. God is totally in charge. For the spirits of demons performing signs or miracles, uh, which go out to the kings of the whole world. So not only the kings of the east, but 
He's going to perform signs from kings. He's going to call kings from all over planet Earth to converge on Palestine and Jerusalem against the Jews and anyone that believes in Christ to wipe them out once and for all. And so they're thinking, it's ironic. They think, oh, we got a clear path. Man, the Euphrates River dried up. we got a shortcut. Let's take it. Little do they know that God is the one that laid out the welcome mat. Bring it on. So kings from all the earth together. And this is Psalm chapter 2, by the way. Kings of the whole world gather together for the war of the great day of God. The war. This is it. This is the battle of Armageddon. This is the last battle at the end of the age. This is the battle and war at the end of the seven-year tribulation just before the millennium. This isn't any war that has ever happened in history. This is yet future. Verse 15. I'm glad I won't be there. By the way, I'm a Christian. Part of the church. Body of Christ. Maybe I will be there. Oh, no, I am. Be there. Sorry, Colossians says and Revelation 19 says that I will be there, but I'm following my commander in chief, which is Jesus, the Messiah. And he's got a supernatural white horse, by the way, that flies really fast. And he's coming down with the sword coming out of his mouth. And all the saints in white are following on their white horses, too. And I'm just going, woohoo, let's go, Jesus. So I, I will be there. And I really don't have to do a whole lot except clean up. That's what I'm told in Scripture. Verse 15, behold. Or check this out. Wake up. Warning. And this is Jesus talking. I am coming like a thief. See, there's the blessed Savior. Always to the last minute, at all times, before judgment. Jesus, the precious Savior, the heart for sinners. Please repent. Repent. And I'll save you. That's the heart of Jesus. God is a God of love. Absolutely. So is the Lord Jesus. I'm coming like a thief. It's a warning. Blessed is the one. See, you can be blessed if you want to. Just repent. Just believe in me. Believe in the gospel. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments or his clothes on so he doesn't go around naked. He's talking about sin. Unforgiven sin. Your sin is exposed. The whole world will see your sin. God will expose your sin to the angels someday if it's unforgiven. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, his gospel, his death, his resurrection on your behalf. If you don't bow the knee to the Lord Jesus, you will be shamed publicly and actually eternally. It doesn't have to be that way. Be the one of the blessed ones who repents and believes in the gospel. So it's a gospel invitation. Again, even in the midst of judgment, verse 16, and they gather them together. So all the kings of the earth gather together for this war to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon or what we call Armageddon in Megiddo, in the Valley of Esdralon, there in Palestine. That's probably where the headquarters of the battle will be in the plain of Jezreel. But we know from other passages, like we saw last week, that the, that'll be the headquarters, but the war and the bloody mess is going to extend about 200 miles, just like down the spine of Palestine in the future. That's why we call it the Battle of Armageddon. Let's go on to the last bowl judgment, 17. By the way, uh, the, seventh, the bowl judgment, seventh bowl judgment doesn't end in chapter 16. There are elements of the seventh bowl that are described in chapter 17, 18, and 19. It continues even into the beginning of chapter 21 as well. So we're going to see that later. So here's the seventh bowl judgment. Seventh bowl is on the air. On the air, wow. Well, who does that affect? Everybody, everybody who breathes. It's universal. God pours out a judgment on the air and natural disasters result. Natural meaning things in nature, like earthquakes and that kind of stuff. Not that it's not a supernatural event. It is a supernatural event. So it's supernatural, natural disasters, if that's possible. Well, let's, let's look what happened. Verse 17, And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple. That's probably God's voice again from the throne saying, It is done. Almost similar to it is finished, but it's a different word. 
In other words, God's been orchestrating a plan for 6,000 years. It's going according to schedule. It's going to happen exactly the way he defined it. It's going to happen exactly the way he determined it before the foundation of the world. It is done. This is it. This is the last straw and hurrah. All according to plan. It is done. God is sovereign. God is in charge. God is all-powerful. That is our Savior. That is our Father if you know Him personally. Isn't that comforting to know that God is totally sovereignly in control of all things? Because I know I'm not. That's a fearful thing too. But we rest in God who's in charge of all things. Verse 18, And there were, uh, then there were flashes of lightning. This is a theophany happening in heaven with all this judgment of putting God's majesty on display. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Man, it's ear-piercing. It is so loud. And there was a great earthquake on the earth as a result, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. That's the one thing I asked that pastor. Is like, you're saying all this chapter 16 stuff happened all throughout history? And well, what about this verse where it says there was such a great earthquake that there had not been since man came to be upon the earth so great was the earthquake? He says, well, that's just uh, literary liberties by the writer to emphasize this is a really big earthquake that happens all throughout history. Oh, I don't think so. This is unprecedented. It is a great earthquake. This earthquake was predicted in a couple of paths. It's predicted in Joel. It is predicted in Zechariah 14. A couple other places. We read Haggai. Haggai predicted this earthquake. This earthquake happens when Jesus lands in Jerusalem for this battle. Unprecedented, mighty, huge, massive like I said, it changes the topography. God, Jesus literally steps on and smashes mountains and pushes, creates new ones. Verse 19, in the great city, the great city, that's Jerusalem because that's where Jesus lands. Uh, the great, Jerusalem is called the great city in Revelation 11.4, by the way. Well, this is the great city. That's Jerusalem. Not Babylon. It's Jerusalem. Verse 19. And Jerusalem was split into three parts. The Old Testament talks about this as well. The reconfiguration of the headquarters of Jesus as he rules for a thousand years. The great city of Jerusalem was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. This is universal impact, devastation. Babylon the great, Antichrist, his headquarters where he rules the world, was remembered before God, remembered in a bad way, remembered in judgment, to give her the cup of the wine of God's fierce wrath. Day of reckoning. Verse 20, and every island fled away. Again, that topography changing is got, Jesus steps on mountains and is creating new mountains all over planet Earth. Water splashing, sloshing all over the place. And some islands will be drowned and others will be created at that time. Verse 20, every island fled away and the mountains were not found Verse 21, not only that, get this, huge hailstones. There was a plague of hail in uh, the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. Hail and fire came down. This is different because the hailstones are huge. They're massive. God's throwing hailstones down from heaven to smash and crush people. The huge hailstones. By the way, it's great. Mega hailstones. How big? Well, about 100 pounds. Actually, the Greek word that is used uh, could refer to anything 108 to 130 pounds. That would be like throwing my oldest daughter out of the sky and letting her land on somebody. Slash. Not the 130 part, the 108 part. <laughs> Huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven. They're coming from God upon men, upon earth dwellers, upon unbelievers. And men, how do they respond? In repentance? No. They blasphemed God for the third time. We've seen this. Verse 9 and 11. Blaspheme God. Curse God. And they curse it because of the plague of the hell. See, they know God is doing this. It's not, hmm, I wonder where this is coming from. Oh, isn't evolution interesting? Good times, bad times. No, this is God the Creator 
full of wrath and they know it. So it's conscious, knowing, accountable, willful hatred of God. That's what blasphemy is. So they curse God. They blaspheme because of the plague of the hill because its plague was extremely severe. Literally, uh, was extremely megas, great, unparalleled, unprecedented. Man, you read that chapter and you just kind of go, wow, I need, a, I need a break. I need a rest. I need to sit down and have lunch at the fellowship meal. So let's do that. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come to meet with the saints, to be a part of the body of Christ locally, to worship you, to have fellowship, to sing to you, uh, to, to study your word and to learn from you. And on a human level, God, these are these are hard things to understand and comprehend and to assimilate into our thinking and our worldview and our short sightedness. And but God, we as believers, we trust you. We agree with those in heaven who exclaimed, holy and just are your judgments because you're the creator, you're holy, you're perfect, and you're also the blessed savior. And thank you that even to the 11th hour, you are calling out to sinners with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that they might repent and be saved because you've made provision for any sinner who would believe in your glorious gospel. And we pray that this would motivate us, Lord, uh, that we would be persuaded by judgment that is coming to be motivated to pray for salvation of the lost and plant seeds of the gospel and be a glorious witness on your behalf wherever we go. Help us to do that in the power of your spirit as we commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.